You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to the Archaeotech Podcast, episode 208. I'm your host, Chris Webster, with my co-host, Paul Zimmerman. Today, we talk about using LIDAR to analyze prehistoric roads. Let's get to it. All right, everybody, welcome to the show. Paul, back in the States again for a brief period of time. (laughs) Just very brief. Tomorrow afternoon, I am flying out. Tomorrow morning, I'm Mm -hmm. leaving the house, so I better get packed real soon here. And then I'm going to spend another (laughs) month plus in Saudi Arabia again, doing this weird kind of hybrid PM field director sort of job that I'm doing. Uh, nice. Looking forward to it. There's been a lot going on and uh, trying to deal with some of the stuff remotely has been, let's just say a challenge. Yeah. <laughs> so it'll be good to actually be there in person and yeah. you know, crack heads when I have to. I can imagine. I can imagine. Yeah. It's never good trying to manage stuff remotely, especially, especially field work. I mean, that's just, yeah, I don't even know how you would do that. That's, that's ridiculous. So good on you for that one. Well, no, my counterpart that's out there right now, she's been very good and she's been very diligent. It's just it's too much for one person. So we have yeah. a standing meeting yeah. every day and we discuss the problems and uh, I try mm-hmm. to offer my perspective and some suggestions about how things can be dealt with. And, you know, most of the issues we have are around staffing, but yeah. there's occasional stuff, you know, we're working with engineering companies and, you know, you give them an inch, they take a mile and we have to, you know set boundaries, know when to put our foot down on things, know when to escalate things to the uh, the hires up in the company, that sort of stuff. And, um, you know, if we're there in person, we can talk about this stuff in person. But as yeah. it is, things take, you know, everything's got a day delay before she can tell me. And by mm-hmm. then it's late in the day for her and it's first thing in the morning for me. And so it's a, yeah. it's a challenge. It's a fun challenge, but I'm, I'm looking forward actually to getting back out there and dealing with things directly. I'm curious, logistically, if, uh, you know, since we talk archaeology and stuff on the show, I'm curious, logistically, are they cycling people back to the States just to kind of prevent burnout? Or did you, re- did you request that? I'm just wondering. I had to come back because of some family things. And oh, then okay. also I had a uh, court date. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I didn't do anything yeah. bad. It was to resolve a problem with taxes that wasn't mine. <laughs> well, it nice. is my problem to, to fix, but it wasn't mine that, that started it. So, <laughs> oh, man. Uh, so that was nice. yesterday. And, okay. uh, and oh, and yesterday also happened to be my anniversary. So, you know, things coincided nicely. You know, it's nice to keep those things in check, you know, make sure you're uh, checking all the boxes there. Yep, absolutely. <laughs> But yeah, we do try to cycle people through because we uh, we want to build up a stock of really good people who know Mm -hmm. the area, know the materials, work well together. Yeah. And that means getting them out there for good long periods of time and then getting them back home so they can you know recover a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. That's good. It's good logistics to do that. Right. You don't you don't want people to burn out and just, you know, not have that, especially being over in a foreign country like that. Burn through them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. All right, cool. Let's talk about uh, our topic today. So we're discussing a paper that we saw recently in Advances in Archaeological Science, uh, our source for lots of things on this show. 
And the paper is by Sean Field. It's called LiDAR Derived Road Profiles, a case study using Chaco roads from the U.S. Southwest. And both Paul and I were like, this sounds real familiar. So I went and looked and <laughs> episode 117, November 28th, 2019, we did a, a show called Analyzing the Chaco and Road Network. And we interviewed Sean Field, the author of this study. So that's more work on this, you know, post-pandemic and and pre-pandemic last time. So I don't know how his how his field work changed or if anything was had to be done differently, but it's pretty cool to see him continuing on this and continuing to publish on this topic. Yeah, and it's really a cool evolution of what he was working on before. I mean, it makes a lot of sense. And what we know from, I mean, the article in and of itself makes a lot of sense, but also in terms of what we know from his prior work, it, it, it grows from that and it explores new tech ways of dealing with mapping and understanding this road network. And so that, that yeah. just from kind of a, from a meta perspective was really kind of interesting to me just to, to see the evolution, the, the development of his own methodology and his own, uh, you know, tech chops and everything. Mm -hmm. it's just, you know, I would like to talk to him again about this. Yeah. I mean, hopefully we can get him on because it, it would be nice to have that follow up because I'm, I'm interested too. And, in, you know, a lot of people only put together papers for the things that uh, often for the things that worked, you know what I mean? Like what else has he tried <laughs> in order to analyze these roads that actually didn't work, you know, and, and are there papers about that mm -hmm. somewhere that maybe didn't make it to SA advances and might be somewhere else or, you know, along those lines. So, but regarding that, you know, talking about these road networks, it's actually pretty cool studying these because a lot of people have studied the Chaco and road networks in, in the past. And for anybody that doesn't know what we're talking about, Chaco Canyon, Northwestern New Mexico, you know, big, cultural area had a really high point for about what a thousand years or something like that give or take where mm. there was a lot of people there settlements all over the place pueblo benito big famous one that's down in the canyon if you ever have a chance to go there and see all that stuff oh my god it's just it looks like it's people phenomenal. lived there yesterday it's crazy <laughs> yeah it's really neat um and as a side note the supernova pictograph is there which was i really love that thing which was really cool because mm. It's got correlation with other networks. I think uh, I think it was written about in Greece, definitely China, and I think Egypt as well. This supernova that was visible during the daytime at one point back in like it was around 1200 or 1100 or something like that, if I remember right, AD. And it was uh, noted by multiple societies, including this pictograph that was put up on a the underside of a rock ledge in Chaco Canyon, which is super cool. So mm. anyway. All that's really neat. And he starts out just by saying why they're studying this stuff with, you know, understanding how people moved around this network with Chaco Canyon kind of being the hub and moving to the outlying facilities and, and not facilities, but I guess villages and settlements and, and camps and how people use that to basically stay in touch and to trade and to have that interaction. And it's it's interesting to understand the evolution of these roads and how they were constructed and how they were used to facilitate this network. Yeah. And it's one of those things, a lot of societies, and this is part of the introduction, you know, roadways are important components of it. And so he talks about, uh, about elevated roadways in South America. He talks about the Roman roads. I mean, Roman roads mm -hmm. is a thing that we all know about <laughs> as a term, as an idea, even if we don't know any of the details. The existence of them is one of the, the kind of cool cross-cultural anthropological things about humans that, that you can compare from one society to another. And then like so many other things, religion, cuisine, whatever, architecture, go on down the list. There are different takes on it, different ways that things are made, different ways that things are done, different reasons, different underlying reasons and different proximal reasons of why 
people make their roads in the places they make them and in the ways that they make them. And, mm-hmm. uh, and so he starts analyzing that, trying to get a little bit of sense of what makes this road network uniquely Chacoan. What really interests me about that as well is, I guess it, it's really visible in places like Nevada, right? Where you've got some trail that's listed on a map from like the 20s that's now Interstate 80 or something like that. You know what I mean? How <laughs> some of these old roads that that may have started out as, you know, initially used by Native Americans for sure to to transit you know, common pathways, like maybe there's a river in the way or there's a path. So everybody's going to kind of take the same path in that case. And it's a Mm -hmm. path of least resistance, so to speak. So it makes sense to have a road there. It's really interesting to me that most of the stuff in and out of Chaco has just never been developed because nobody ever moved to Chaco Canyon after this, right? The the only people Mm -hmm. that moved there was the National Park Service. So it would have been interesting to see how that would have developed. You know, these all would have been destroyed. And would would people have been using the same network of roads? Because like I said, in Nevada, there's, what is it? Well, there's I-40 down there. I I know like the... uh, uh, Route 66, not in Nevada, neither of those in Nevada, but in Nevada, you've got Interstate uh, Highway 50 and you see the new road. But then in some cases on corners, you can see like the pavement from the old road, you know, out all broken mm-hmm. up on so the side of a hillside or something when it was a two lane little road that, you know, just kind of followed the hills. And that's yeah. I mean, that's along the same lines of what we're talking about. Somebody's going to analyze that later on and discuss what these, you know, how important these roads were and how they were maintained in order to keep them useful. Yeah, the part of uh, New York where I live here, an hour north of, of New York City, tons of roads like that. Like Route 22 is just a couple miles away from me. But if I drive up Route 22, it gets intersected in a bunch of places by old Route 22. <laughs> <You know? laughs> right. So along the way, as car travel became more important, they went from this meandering sort of uh, you know horse path to you know a bigger roadway that was straighter and for whatever reasons, followed uh, what was considered a better line. Uh, But you see that, Mm -hmm. you see the evolution of these things through time. And it's really easy to, if you just, you know, then if you're in a place like where I am and you just look out and there it is, yeah, you know, on the road signs. I know. It seems like the evolution of the modern road is generally straighter and wider. And that's about it. (laughs) (laughs) Which makes me wonder if, you know, kind of getting off the rails a little bit here as we get into an era of potentially self-driving cars. I mean, those are coming down the line whether you want them or not. So, you know, self-driving cars and just a different way of using the roads rather than relying on people, Mm. relying on software to kind of manage this, we'll be able to have a different style of road system. And it makes me wonder if you know, they'll continue to be, they wouldn't need to be as wide, I'd imagine. So we could probably have narrower roads in the future just because they'll be more efficiently used by computers rather than people trying to jam in and don't know how to use the zipper method to merge onto an interstate. (laughs) Self-driving cars know how to do that. So I'm thinking traffic will be a thing of the past, but it would be interesting to see what our connection to roads would be because, you know, more than likely we'll be inside of a car with the windows all opaque and we'll just be playing video games, reading, you know, having a meeting, doing whatever we're doing, but not driving. And it'll be interesting to see that. But anyway, you're not driving right now. Are you, <laughs> uh, I'm currently not driving, but I'm in my car, which is also my home. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. Just so, <laughs> Exactly. Exactly. All right. Let's take a short break and then come back and, and see how Sean used LIDAR to study these roads in a way that really hadn't been done much in the past. Back in a minute. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. 
and all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. You've worked hard for what you have. Your money, your assets, your 401k, and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com aware. Terms apply. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. Welcome back to the Architect Podcast, episode 208. And we're talking about Sean Fields' article in Advances in Archaeological Practice. It's... Uh, Available. Go check it out. We're linking to it here in the show notes. So LIDAR-derived road profiles. And really, we do mean profiles. You know, something looking at it yeah. from the side, you know, a profile. Because he mentions lots of people have used LIDAR to find roads, right? Because roads typically mm -hmm. will have either a depression and or some sort of berm or something that you can see that are often in straight lines that nature is has a really hard time making. So when you're looking at a surface, LIDAR is relatively easy to use as long as you don't have like a ton of things obstructing it, like different vegetation that the lighter perhaps can't see through. Although lighter is notoriously good at seeing through vegetation. So yeah. yeah that really resonated with me. I mentioned on this show uh, a couple of years ago, how we were working on a project near the, uh, the Hudson river and mm -hmm. we knew that there were roadways there. Yeah. But they were really hard to find. And then I found uh one meter dem of that area, lighter dem and you know, I looked at it and didn't see much because I was doing the regular grayscale because I don't like hill shades. And then just for you know, for giggles, I put in a hill shade and boom, all these roads <laughs> popped up. Nice. Some of the, uh, the the mapped documented structures that we were looking at the foundations of were clear as day in that, uh, you know, and in relation to the roads and all this stuff just just popped. So he does talk about the use of hill shade as one method that people have used, and so he's. Mm -hmm testing out another one, but it's also the same kind of a data set being LIDAR based. But yeah, so I have that that kind of not rigorous, very, you know, one-off sort of accidental use of LIDAR to find roads. And, uh, and it's neat to see what somebody does with the rigorous methodological approach to this. Yeah, for sure. I don't remember reading in this because I mean, I read it like a month ago when we were going to talk about it and then skimmed it over again today. This is readily available LIDAR data he got here, right? This was already collected. He mm -hmm. didn't collect this LIDAR data from somewhere else. I don't remember. Do you remember that? Yeah, I was um, I, I was skimming too because I, I was, had the same question just before we came on air and I didn't see yeah. where it came from. But I think that if it if it had been, uh, you know, custom gathered for this, then it would have been mentioned a little more prominently. Yeah, probably. Although that wasn't really the focus of the article. It's just about using the LIDAR. So I guess no, it really wasn't. Yeah. It was what you do with the um, LIDAR data, not the fact of the LIDAR data. 
Yeah, indeed. And the study area, too, is really massive. It literally is the entire corner of northwest mm-hmm. New Mexico. Well, not the whole corner, but a large portion of the corner of northwest New Mexico. And because uh, these Chacoan roads on figure one in the article, if you're following along, really shows how far out these networks really extend and then where where things are in relation to all that. And then that's matched up with a with a LIDAR image of a road that just pops clearly like somebody laid a stick in the sand or something like that on a beach. Yeah. I mean, that's what the road looks like, but it's massive. <laughs> so, yeah. So basically what he does is he's taking the, um, in the study, he's taking various segments of these roads, things that had been previously known. He's not using it to identify roads, not at this point. Mm -hmm. People have definitely done that and done that successfully, but that's not the interest of the article, right? Which I thought was an interesting take. It's really at at characterizing the roads. Uh, So he's taking known ground truth segments of roads and then generating these profiles programmatically in R every Mm -hmm. half meter along. I mean, to the point that they've got about 84,000 different transect profiles generated with this program, which is, well, that's a lot of data. And then uh, the code for the program is up on GitHub. And that's fantastic. Mm-hmm. I love when people do that. So, you know, that, that, that makes me pleased. The, the crux of the article really is what's done with those profiles, how the, mm-hmm. the data are massaged in order to try to compare one set against another. How familiar are you with R, just out of curiosity? Yeah. So I've mentioned before, I'm not a fan of R. I totally get why people are, no pun mm-hmm. intended, but <laughs> I'll stick it with it. <laughs> I, I totally get why some people are, but it just doesn't make sense to me. And so I yeah. think I compared it once uh, on here with uh, with using left-handed scissors. I'm very right-handed. <laughs> yeah. And if I try to use left-handed scissors, I either screw up because I'm using my left hand, which isn't very good. Or <laughs> I try to use them with my right hand and then the angle is all wrong. And I don't, you know, so it's, yeah. it's, that's what R is like for me. Uh, I, okay. again, I really get why some people love it and I've seen fantastic work that people have done with it. It's one of those tools that, you know, if, if you're good at it, if it, if it resonates with you, there's fantastic work that's being done with it. So, um, you know, more power to yeah. anybody who can. I really only ask because I really don't know a whole lot about it other than what we talk about people using it for in some of the stuff that we talk about, right? Mm-hmm. I've never used R myself, never really studied it that much. I actually did a workshop in R one time at a conference. It was so long ago, I didn't even remember it. So that's pretty much useless at this point. But the fact that they used R or that Sean used R to essentially slice up this model into these nearly 84,000 transects wasn't really something I had thought that R was used for, right? I thought it was more of a, almost more of a statistical thing rather than a a tool like that, right? Yeah, the first time I saw R being used for spatial processing, it was in a lecture a bunch of years ago now by Sebastian Heath, who's also been on this. Uh, Mm, He's a professor at New York's Institute for the Study of the Ancient World. And I thought that is madness and I really <laughs> dig it. <laughs> you know, that you're using it for, but it's since then it's become a very legitimate spatial analysis tool. Yeah. Again, one that I don't use. I gravitate more towards Python for things. It's totally legit and a lot of people use it to great effect. One of the things that he was doing with this, with these transects anyway, uh, really just cross sections of these roads in, in lots and lots of different little places. And it's really only. What am I looking at here? Like 10 roads, eight roads, something like that. And all of them had certain number of segments to the roads because maybe they weren't totally contiguous, uh, but they could tell, you know, where they were here. And then they had the length of the segments. The longest one looks like it was about 11 
kilometers, give or take. And that one had 23,000 transect lines. So they were really, he's really taking a look at this. But here's the thing. He's using the LiDAR-derived data to basically take what's visible on the surface about this road. And there's no backhoes here that are cutting a transect across these roads or anything like that to really look at the mm-hmm. stratigraphy of previous road construction events or if that's even visible with these. It really is a, a surface level, literally a surface level analysis of the shapes of these roads. And the interesting thing about mm-hmm. that that I thought was that he's using that to compare those profiles and what we know about the profile with ground truth roads, so ones that either he's seen or somebody else has, but either way, he's got data for it and saying, what does this tell us about the ground truth road that, you know, we can say as a control? And then looking at the non-ground truth roads, the ones that maybe nobody or maybe just him hasn't visited and saying, okay, so what can we infer about this based on the profiles that we have and what we know about the ground truth roads? It's It's a really cool way to do it without, I mean, honestly, with minimizing your field work, which is expensive and, you know, but getting some really valuable data done as well and, and doing this. So it's, it's pretty cool the way he did that. Yeah. It seems that there's a lot of work going on now between remote sensing of various kinds and ground truthing. I can't talk about it much, but one of the projects I worked on last year Mm -hmm. involved doing a lot of pedestrian survey to verify sites that were identified with machine learning. Oh yeah. And uh, we found that it was really strikingly accurate at at finding sites. The sizes and the shapes of the sites weren't always the same once we got on them versus what the uh, the computer had picked out, but the locations of them was was really, really good. Was it done like uh, predictive modeling? Was it looking for where it thinks sites should be or was it fed information regarding like land size, shapes and things like that, like LIDAR models and stuff like that? What did it use to find the sites? I wasn't involved in any way, shape, or form mm. on that side of it, so I can't tell you what the inputs were. Uh, okay. I would guess that knowing the people who were doing it, it was everything they could get, including some other survey work that we had done. Right, gotcha. so they had okay. known targets of various kinds of sites. They had known, you know, geological maps. They had uh, mm-hmm. slope and aspect and all that sort of stuff. And I think they just fed everything they could at the at the computer models. Uh, and started getting yeah. out areas of high probability. And then those ones of highest probability, we had archaeologists looking at them in uh, in satellite and aerial photos and saying yes or no. And then the ones that got the yes, those are the ones we went to go look at. Right. Okay. Well, that's really cool. What were we going to say before I interrupted you on that? Yeah. No, no. And I was also going to say, you know, about ground truthing, a little bit of a brag here, but we've got an article that just came out in uh, Journal of Anthropological Archaeology. Uh, I'm a co-author on, and it is specifically about ground truthing because it's a response to another article that came out last year, made a lot of buzz because it talks about, it tries to basically argue for a very different configuration of Sumerian cities than typically envisioned. Uh, But it's that article is based entirely on remote sense data. And our contention is that it wasn't done right because it doesn't match what we find in excavation and in the coring that we're doing on that site. So, Hmm. you know, I, you know, you and I both love remote data. I, you know, I do a lot of it, (laughs) but I also, also love ground truthing things. And and I know that these two things have to work in concert. I mean, it has to be done, right? The the more that we ground truth this remote data, I mean, the more accurate it becomes, the more, the more we're able to, Mm -hmm. you know, really do some good predictions. I, I keep thinking back, especially with this whole 
with this LIDAR server here, it's really got me thinking. And you talking about, you know, finding sites last year based on based on machine learning. You know, when we first started doing this podcast together, I was still kind of fresh off uh, by a few years that China Lake survey that I did where I really was starting to think about, Mm -hmm. you know, doing high resolution drone imagery, if not photogrammetry, um, but maybe even just high resolution video. And then, you know, getting 100 percent survey coverage with that kind of machine because there's virtually no vegetation out there, no trees, nothing for the drone to run into. So you could really easily map out an area for it to look at and then have. And then have uh, originally I was, you know, I was always thinking people actually just look at this looking for obvious things and then circling those and then archaeologists go out and ground truth them. But the obvious answer is there's so many sensors you can put on a drone these days. I mean, you can put LIDAR on a drone. You can put other types of imagery on a drone and then, you know, take all this information in and man, you almost don't even need to be there. You just tell the drone, go out here, do this, feed that to the computer, and then have the computer send that to me at Starbucks because that's where I'll be, and I'll go out and ground truth it. (laughs) That's about what we're getting to. (laughs) Yeah, we're not quite there yet, but it is going in that direction, definitely. Um, I think that there's still a lot of uh, work to be done on both ends of it. And I know you're a bigger fan of AI than I am, but you know, one of the things that you keep on, I've heard you say a lot about AI is how it, you know, it feeds its outputs back in its inputs to get better. People are also really good at that too, at feeding data into things to get better models. And so, you know, I don't think it's an either or basically, I don't think one thing is ever going to replace the other, but I think that in concert, the, the AI, the machine learning, the the ground truthing, the remote sensing, all working together are going to get mm-hmm. us uh, in a very interesting place. Uh, yeah. Do you want to talk about this article some more? <laughs> hey, we probably should. Yeah, let's do that. Um, actually, let's uh, let's just take our final break and then we'll come back and talk about this. We don't have an ad for this, but we have been starting to get some uh, some good traction for whatever reason. I don't know. I haven't been doing anything special, but arcpodnet.com forward slash members. Uh, go check out that on the website because our last cultural share event will be up there shortly, probably tomorrow. Well, it'll already be up there by the time you're hearing this. I'm not thinking fourth dimensionally. Anyway, the... Uh, <laughs> my favorite quote from back in the future <laughs> anyway um <laughs> so we'll already be up but members get access to those in the past and we had a great one this last sunday as we're recording this on underwater archaeology so it was a really uh fascinating discussion so uh, members can check that out if you're not a member arcpodnet.com forward slash members we'll be back in a minute you've worked hard for what you have your money your assets your 401k and home isn't it all worth protecting nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com aware. Terms apply. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. 
Spread the word. The JCPenney Friends and Family Sale is back. And this week, we're passing the savings on to you. Use your extra 30% off coupon to prep your home and style your family for Easter. That's extra savings on top of our great low prices. Plus, share your coupon with everyone you know and love. It's always better when we save together. JCPenney. Make everybody count. Offer valid 311 through 317. Exclusions apply. See store or jcp.com for details. Welcome back to the Architect Podcast, final segment of episode 208. Check out the article in the show notes if you haven't done so already, because we're referring to lots of things in there. But yeah, getting back to the article, one of the things I thought was really cool and a very smart thing to do was Sean took these transects that he created, these profiles off those transects, and amplified the topography. Because that's what the LiDAR is producing, right? It's a topographic map, essentially, Mm -hmm. produced by LiDAR. And he's amplifying this to really see that, because some of the changes... And some of the variation, the subtle variations in these could be extremely subtle until you really jack it up. I do that in audio editing all the time. Sometimes if I'm having a trouble mm. finding something because somebody's too quiet, I'll just take that segment and jack up the amplitude on it so I can really see what's going on there, delete what I need to, and then re- bring it back down. And it's an easy way to, to find small things. Yeah. And that's something that you'll often do with topographic imagery, like, uh, like hill shades, you know, you'll you'll make it so, you know, one meter in the vertical is not, is represented as three meters or something so yeah. that you, you really get the texture and you get the differences that you otherwise you wouldn't see just because the earth is a little flatter than, you know, once you get up high enough than you might expect, mm-hmm. not everywhere, but lots of places. Yeah. And so they have to do that. I think with this particular uh, technique, the problem with that is you can introduce a lot of noise. So he has a secondary right. part of how he smooths out the noise. And that's ingenious. He's smoothing out the noise both on any individual profile. You know, So instead of having it be jaggy and a little lower and then jaggy up high, it smooths it out into a nice normalized curve, the nice flat bottom. And then normalized between one and the next one mm. and averaging those so that you end up with a very idealized but generated from real data profile of where that that roadway is and what it actually looks like, what its cross section or its idealized Mm -hmm. cross section is. And along with that, I mean, that might not make sense, but I've got to highlight the figure three in this article is absolutely beautiful because it conveys exactly what they're doing with that so succinctly and so attractively. (laughs) I just, if nothing else, just go take a look at the article for that because I think that is is an Edward Tufte worthy (laughs) uh, illustration of how to do a map and how to do a diagram. Nice. Yeah, it's fantastic. In fact, I was sitting on that and I was going to mention it when you brought that up because it is fantastic. Yeah. It's interesting too, because we're not doing this just to make fancy graphs and maps, he's trying to figure out, you know, some information about these. What does it all mean, right? So one of the things he mentions in the article is that his longitudinal profiles um, show how the road grade was modified in relationship to the nearby terrain. So how it's, you know, changed and and, and really constructed in response to the nearby terrain. And then the transverse mm-hmm. profiles or cross sections help obviously reveal depth, shape and character of the roadbed, which I also thought was really interesting because, you know, it's interesting through time as you look at those, how people use roads. Are they walking in single file or are they walking side by side? Is it a wide road because they're carrying lots of things or maybe even have some sort of, I don't know if they, I don't think they had carts or anything like that. They carried stuff on their heads. I don't know. But uh, they didn't have wheels. They didn't or have they wheels. Didn't they really didn't. Wheels. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. They didn't construct wheels. Let's just put it that way. 
but and, and if they had they'd be very different roads like if you did this on you know a lot of early roman roads at least ones they didn't pave or or put flagstones down or something like that in some way even those though they have ruts in them that are you know predictable based on yeah. the things that were that were rolling over them so yeah it's really interesting and this this research can be used to expand into other areas like that and really is a, a foundation for that so yeah, your comment about how the roads were used and how people traverse them is actually part of the previous article that we interviewed him on here, mm -hmm. talking about moving logs and, you know, how people would have carried these things. Uh, because, you know, you could carry a log side by side, you could carry it single file, you mm -hmm. could have, you know, a couple people or you could have multiple people, you can drag it, all this stuff goes into questions of how he's looking at how these roadways were used. And, uh, and this is yet then, I guess, another data set to help understand that you know again it came up a little bit in our last interview uh two weeks ago mm -hmm. but trying to get at not just the, the the tech of it for its own sake and not just the numbers of things for their own sake but also to try to get an understanding of how people did what they did even the mundane tasks yeah. moving a load of goods from one place to another making a, a, a you know a lithic tool stuff that probably wouldn't have been recorded in any way, even if you have writing, <laughs> yeah. but does tell you things about how people in the past lived. And so it's, it's interesting just to try to suss it out. Yeah. And something along those lines too, that he mentions, some people look at the stuff that archaeologists study and, and other sciences like this, and they're going, okay, that's cool. But why, why, why do we care? Right. It's a, it's a stupid mm -hmm. road that you went from one place to the next. Who cares about a road, right? We care about the things at the end of the roads. But one thing he, I, I think cleverly mentions is understanding how the road was constructed and its morphology and how that matches with, you know, some of the other roads around there really tells you a lot about the culture that was there. Right. Because, is it a single line path that was just well-worn through time where, you know, people were going from one place to the next and that's just kind of haphazardly made almost like game trails because it's a path of mm -hmm. least resistance between two places or did it start that way and then turned into something that was more constructed, which nobody's just going to widen and make and improve a road like just because they want to, that's going to take some sort of, you know, political or cultural will or even religious will in order to make this thing that's for the good of the people that's going to help everybody. Again, people don't just go out and do that. They're usually told to do that and brought together by a person or a unifying body or a concept. And knowing how these roads were constructed can help start to get to some of those meanings, which I thought was really cool. Yeah. And especially when you do have it in a complex society, you oftentimes will get other things like who can use the road? Yeah. I don't know that that's been suggested in terms of these roads, but that, that is a legitimate question that you could ask of roadways anywhere. You know, mm -hmm. is this a private road? Is this a toll road? Is this a private road of some kind? Is this something that anybody can, can access or is it just for cultural or political or religious or whatever elites to use, you know? Yeah. I or inversely it's, it's, considered too gross for them. It's only for the lowest castes or whatever, you know, there, 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 there are lots yeah. of ways that you can slice and dice how you want to analyze these and, uh, and try to get a better understanding through, yeah, like you said, you know, people are, yeah. you know, we tend to focus on what's on the end of the roads, but the roads themselves hold a lot of information themselves. I'll tell you what, there's some interesting carpool lanes here in the Seattle area going up 405 and, and up I-5, mostly 405. Carpool I'm thinking. lanes. Yeah. No, listen to this. It's crazy because they've, they've done a really interesting thing that I haven't seen anywhere else in the country. And I've been in a lot of places. They've made the carpool lanes a toll lane. 
and they're calling it a, a carpool lane slash express lane. So if you've got two or more express people, lane. you can use it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if you got two or more people, use it. You can use it for free. If you want to pay seventy five cents to a dollar twenty five, and you're only one person, mm-hmm. then you can also use it, right? And you're sitting in yeah. traffic, and you're just looking over there, going, "Man, those people, they suck." Until you get over there, then you feel like the elite. <laughs> you feel like <laughs> I'm in it now. <laughs> See you, suckers. <laughs> so anyway. But you're totally right. Yeah. What uh, if somebody's going to go through the trouble of building and constructing and maintaining a road? You know, there's a darn good chance that they're going to go and limit who can use that sometimes. And and maybe they didn't, though. Mm-hmm. Maybe it was made for everybody. But, you know, y- you want some recognition for that effort a lot of times, whether that's, again, through political or, or, or religious, I guess, uh you know, some sort of gains that way or, or something else, who knows, but just studying the construction of these and, and really getting into it tells you a lot more than you would think you would know, you know, from just from not knowing, because everybody studies the settlements out there, right? Pueblo Bonito has been studied to, you know, the last centimeter of, of rock there and, Hmm. Uh, and all the other little, you know, Chacoan settlements within Chaco Canyon. And then the Chacoan outliers that are at the ends of these roads and along the roads, but yeah, how much how much work has been done in between them to know the significance between different things? You know, if it's a really nice, good, well-maintained road, maybe that imbues a lot of significance, religious or otherwise, between those two endpoints. You know what I mean? So. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, before we wrap up, one last thing I'd like to comment about this is that a couple years ago, when we talk about LIDAR, it was about the LIDAR itself is really whiz bang. Cool. We can use it to find sites. We can use it yeah. to find features. We can use it to find different things. And it was, it was all about finding. And here it's not this article. It's not about the finding. It's, it's taking it one step further. It's like, okay, so this is yet another data set that we have. What can we do with that? Not just find the sites, not yeah. just find the roads, not just find the things, but how can we try to tease out additional knowledge from that? Mm-hmm. I love so it. again, That's... like I said, this article is the evolution of his of his previous one, and the tool set is evolving as we're discussing it here on the podcast. Mm-hmm. Nice, nice. Well, we're. I'd love to try to get Sean on. Sean, if you happen to be listening to this, uh, you contact Paul or I. You can get a hold of me and Chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Uh, all our contact info is on the website. Uh, if anybody knows Sean, wants to get a hold of him, I'll probably try to send him an email. Just been so busy, just didn't have a chance to really reach out. But that doesn't mean we can't come on and talk about some of the other stuff that either didn't make it to the article or really kind of flesh out some of this information. So... Any other thoughts on this, Paul, before we close out? Uh, no, I've got a whining dog under my desk here who really needs to go to the bathroom. <laughs> so maybe nice. we should close this out. Nice. All right. Well, with that, we'll see you guys in two weeks. I don't know what we're going to talk about. Paul's in Saudi Arabia. He may or may not be here, but I'll figure something out. <laughs> so I'm going to try. I'm going to try. Ian, I hear you. I hear you. All right. Thanks, everybody. All right. Take care. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Architect Podcast. Links to items mentioned on the show are in the show notes at www.archpodnet.com slash Archaeotech. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com and paul at lugal.com. Support the show by becoming a member at archpodnet.com slash members. The music is a song called Off-Road and is licensed free from Apple. Thanks for listening. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, 
Dig Tech LLC, Cultural Media, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.